On Jordan's bank, the Baptist's cry announces that the Lord is nigh. Come then and listen, for he brings good news about the King of Kings. And that good news in our sermon text today is recorded in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 38. Then Peter began to speak. Now I really am beginning to understand that God does not show favoritism. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent his word to the people of Israel, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. This is the word of our Lord. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. Six months, pretty much, because usually in the Jewish world, you weren't thought of having much to say, being wet behind the ears until you were 30. Then you were considered a mature adult man who had something wise to say. So if he started at age 30, six months into his ministry, the Lord would have come to be baptized. That was the culminating point. After that, John would fade into the background and later be beheaded. Today is about Jesus' baptism. And our theme for our sermon today is, Jesus is our anointed Savior. And so to cut to the chase, since that is our overall theme, we will begin by looking at the last verse of our text about this person, namely Jesus Christ, who is from Nazareth. Not another man named Jesus. It was a very common name in those days, like John. The fact that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. There it is, brothers and sisters in Christ. When had God anointed his son with the Holy Spirit and with power? In certain aspects, you could say when Jesus was conceived in the virgin's womb. Recall there was no male ingredients for the baby. The Holy Spirit took the zygote, if you will, in Mary's womb and knit into it the flesh of our Lord. And yet we cannot understand that as then God possessed the body like a shell. Jesus is true God and true man. And if we think of it that way, we'll fall into certain heresies if we think he just possessed the body. So Jesus had the power of the Holy Spirit with him. But mostly we see that with clear identification when Jesus comes to the river and is baptized. This is where Jesus' baptism stands out. If you were born a Levite, you were running to be priest, and you were in running if you were the right qualifications to be high priest. But you were not the high priest until you were anointed. Solomon was in the running as a prince to be king when David reached the age where it was clear that he no longer could administer as a king. Solomon was anointed in that publicly announced, now Solomon is king. Jesus, up until age 30, lives a fairly normal life, except for he is sin-free because he's God. He has hidden his godhood. He does not use all the powers of his godhood so he can be our substitute. So how would people know that he's the Savior? When he comes to be baptized, this is where his baptism is different than ours. The Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. You and I get the Holy Spirit. And God the Father speaks once of two times that God the Father ever speaks. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
Jesus is the spokesman for the Trinity. Any other time in the Bible besides that, and at the Mount of Transfiguration when God the Father speaks, when you're told God spoke, that is Jesus. He's the mouthpiece for the Trinity. Okay, so this makes it clear. This is the one who's to be the Savior. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied time and time again, the term Messiah means anointed. The term Christ is Greek for anointed. God made it clear. Now begins his public ministry. This is the one I've anointed to be Savior. And now he publicly starts doing that. And then Jesus is led out by the Holy Spirit into the desert for 40 days where he fasts and he's tempted by the devil in ways you and I would not stand up to. And yet we're credited because he did. So it's important for us to understand no one else was ever anointed to be Savior. Jesus' baptism was God the Father and God the Holy Spirit telling the whole world this one is Savior. And that's important for you because you and I fight against the devil, the world, and yes, our own sinful nature. And the world likes to tell us you're not good enough to be forgiven. Why do you even bother with that? And the devil, he likes, he wants us back. He wants us to be his and he'll use our sinful nature as a puppet. And our sinful nature will sit there and say, you haven't done enough to be forgiven. You haven't been sorry enough. How could you do this? How could you be such a sinner? You can't be forgiven. God wouldn't save you. And we can say, be quiet. I am not the one God anointed to save me. I am not the one God anointed to earn my forgiveness. Jesus and only Jesus. And when you hear churches that are confused preach to you that you do the best and then God will do the rest, you can silence them saying, no, I don't contribute. I am not the one anointed to earn my forgiveness and salvation. It is Jesus and only Jesus. And that is such wonderful comfort for you and I. Because we can't earn our forgiveness. We're too sinful. But Jesus did and he's the only one that is meant to. And when he cried out on the cross, it is finished. He meant just that. He had done all the work for all your sins that they are all forgiven. But his anointing also means something else. He was baptized. Jesus lived his life as our substitute. There were all these ceremonial laws in the Old Testament that pointed out that were meant to give the message, you can't help but to be unclean in your sin. I can't imagine living as an Israelite and finding out I just touched this thing, I'm unclean, and now i got to go to the temple and make this sacrifice. What a pain in the neck. And it was meant to give that message. Because of our sin, because of original sin, we cannot help but to be unclean. We cannot save ourselves. So Jesus was our substitute, and he did all those ceremonial laws in our place. And although baptism was not a ceremonial law, and he wants us to be baptized, he was baptized just like all the sinners were baptized. And his baptism empowers our baptism. Now let's get into our text. There's a Roman centurion. A centurion was in charge of 100 men. His name was Cornelius. And living in the region where Jesus had been, he had adopted the Jewish religion, and he looked for the coming Messiah. But even the Jewish people recognized that laws like circumcision and don't eat bacon and stuff like that, that was meant for the Jewish people to represent the glory of the Lord. And they did not demand, if you were born a Gentile, that you be circumcised in order to be saved. But you were unclean if you weren't. 
And a Jewish person certainly would not go into Cornelius' house because it would make them unclean. And a Jewish person certainly wouldn't want to sit next to him in the synagogue because that would make him unclean. I wonder if they were like us today and would make those people sit in the front so everybody else could sit in the back. We tend to do that psychologically. Or maybe they made him sit in the back and the rest could sit in the front. So Cornelius is wondering, he's heard of this Jesus, he's heard of his life and death, could he be the Messiah? And, and as he's praying to God about it, he's told, send for the Apostle Peter. And he does. It takes a day to get where Peter's at. He sends his men, and right before they come, Peter is up on the rooftop. He's praying to the Lord, and this would be Jesus who speaks to him. He gives him a vision with a sheet full of all these animals, clean and unclean, and it comes to him, and he says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter was a devout Jewish man. He says, Surely not, Lord. I've never done anything unclean. Do not call unclean what I have made clean. He does this three times to get the message through Peter. Sometimes the Lord has to do this a hundred times to get the message through with me, and I've never even received a vision. So I've got to compliment Peter that he does pick up on it pretty quickly for a sinner. So why all of this stuff? What about this food stuff? Then these people knock on the door. They're Gentiles. They're unclean. They're uncircumcised. They handle BLT sandwiches. Peter can't be near them. He can't accompany them. They'll make him unclean. By the way, you, they would have hated the centurion. They should have because that was the oppressing government. He kept the Romans in power by being in charge of 100 men. So Peter goes to the house because he recognizes this. And this connects us all back to Jesus' baptism. We are connected in our baptism to Jesus' baptism, as the Apostle Paul spells out in the book of Romans chapter 6. We are buried with him. That means every day, whether you feel it or not, your baptism is drowning your sinful nature. And in your baptism, that Holy Spirit that descended upon Jesus, he is sealed in your heart. And that connects you to Christ so that every day Christ's death is now your death. Christ's life and resurrection is your life and resurrection. And so, yes, when you wonder, will I be saved? You can confidently say, I was baptized and I, my Lord was baptized and his baptism is my baptism and his Holy Spirit is sealed in my heart. So I get his life of perfect obedience, life and death. In other words, your baptism, because of Jesus' baptism, life and death, and resurrection has cleansed you. So now Peter gets it and he has no problem accompanying those unclean Gentiles because he knows they're clean. And when he comes into Cornelius' house, he preaches the sermon that is our text. Verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, on the basis of truth, am I comprehending that God is not a discriminator? Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, our text translates favoritism, which is really good. God doesn't show favoritism. What would it mean to discriminate or to show favoritism? That would be to discriminate on outward appearances or circumstances. God picked Cornelius because of his grace. Cornelius wasn't even a Jew. He didn't deserve it. And the Jewish people thought they deserved it, but most of them rejected the Messiah, or they thought they could earn their forgiveness, or they rejected the Bible as the Sadducees and his miracles. They didn't deserve it. The truth of the matter is these words are wonderful, tremendous comfort. Because if God discriminated against us, 
I'm too sinful, brothers and sisters in Christ. I would be on the highway to hell. Oh, and you are too. Don't think you're better than I am. Now, this is comfort as we apply it to the doctrine of election, also known as predestination. We often wonder, why did God pick me and not someone else? Well, some churches will teach you, and this is very popular in American Christianity, because you made your decision for Christ. But remember, you're not the one who was anointed to be Savior. And in fact, if you truly believe what the Bible says about sin, you're too sinful to make a decision for Christ. No, God chose you. Not showing favoritism. What did I do that stood out? Nothing. It's simply an act of God's grace. If God is going to be fair, we all go to hell. If God is going to discriminate, we all go to hell. In His grace, God chose you. Be thankful for that. That's comfort. People will tell you, well, then you've got you to give so much in the offering. No. God has chosen you. He's put His Holy Spirit in your heart. Through your baptism, He brings you to His Word over and over again. And He keeps you. Now, a hundred years ago, right here in America, the Lutheran Church, and our denomination was involved in this, had quite a struggle. Because some Lutherans, now they formed the largest church body, they said, well, well, you know, it must be that God chose us, elected us, in view of the fact that we would resist the Holy Spirit less. Well, that would be discrimination. No, 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 no. God, in His grace, chose you. And in His grace, He made sure that you would be baptized and have His Holy Spirit sealed in your heart. And all of the power of baptism comes for you. So in verse 35, we're told, rather, in every nation there are those who keep on respecting God and who continue working righteousness. That person is acceptable to God. Now, it's very careful. We have to be very careful how we understand that. They keep on working righteousness. Because, again, people will often teach you that if you, you have to act a certain way, then be saved. No, then God would be discriminating. Or they will tell you, once you're saved, you have to act. The whole entire point here is not that your works save you. No. It's when God's Holy Spirit enters your heart, and it especially happens sealed in there with baptism, then you have that reverent awe for the Lord. Then you have faith. But you know, faith, which is the Holy Spirit living in your heart, isn't just that you're passive. Then you actually do the believing. Then you actually shine forth with Christ's righteousness, so you work righteousness. You can't do this unless the Holy Spirit is already in your heart, unless you are already saved. If you want to make a decision for Christ, the Holy Spirit's already in your heart. You already belong to Christ. So you work righteousness. What does that mean? It means you're here listening to the Word. You're working righteousness. The Ten Commandments become a thank you to God because you are saved. And God is well pleased with that. So Cornelius, who is a Gentile, who likes probably BLT sandwiches, I don't think they'd actually been invented yet, is acceptable to God and he is working righteousness because he wants to hear of this Messiah. He believes this Jesus is the Messiah and he's right. So we're told in verse 36, the word which he sent with a commission to the sons of Israel. The Greek word for sending out, it had a commission. It had power. This is the good news of salvation in Christ. We're told, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he himself is Lord of all. Your baptism gives you peace. Every day, 
Because every day it reminds you, you are sealed. The Holy Spirit is in your heart. You're connected to Christ. All of his works, all of his righteousness is credited to you. And he has forgiven you. His blood is yours. So we're told in verse 37, you yourselves know the message which came throughout all of Judea, which began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Let's get back to John. What was the baptism that John preached? John preached a baptism of repentance, but we have to understand in scripture, there's two definitions for repentance, the lesser and the wider. Repentance in the lesser is wishing you hadn't sinned. John preached against sin. And when people like the Pharisees came and they said, ah, what could it hurt this new thing? We'll give it a try just to cover our bases. If they weren't repentant for their sins, he's talking with adults, adults who already have the Holy Spirit in their heart or should. He, he, he chews them out. Repentance in the wider section is spelled out for us by the Apostle Peter on Pentecost Sunday in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, when he tells the crowd, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, resulting in the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children. Now, I have friends who are very work-righteous and belong to very work-righteous churches that do not believe you should baptize children because they don't believe they're sinners. And they say, can you give me one Bible passage that says you should baptize children? Yes, Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 39. And what does it tell you? It results in the forgiveness of sins. Now, back to what I'm telling you about repentance. When we're baptized, the Holy Spirit enters our heart and it changes. The word for repentance in Greek, metanomoio, means change of mind. It changes your very way of thinking. You go from wanting to embrace the ways of the world and everything to suddenly realizing, I'm forgiven. God has not discriminated and yet in His grace He has made me His child. How can I thank you, Lord? And the greatest way we think the Lord is actually trusting in him for forgiveness. So part of repentance is trusting in him for forgiveness. And then when we look at our sins, then we realize it is this loving, graceful God that I sin against. And I can't help it. But I don't want to do it. And baptism works that in us so that now we use the law, those ten commandments, as a guide, as ten thank yous, as ten ways to praise the Lord. And the Holy Spirit who was sealed in our heart makes that happen. So brothers and sisters in Christ, Peter appears at this Gentile who would be unclean at his house and he lets him know God has saved you as well. And all of this works because of Jesus' baptism. So we see today, Jesus is our anointed Savior. And that means that when your sinful nature tells you I'm given enough offering or you haven't done this, you can tell it, be quiet. I'm not the one that was anointed to earn my forgiveness. I'm not my Savior, Jesus is. He's the only one who had this special kind of baptism. And yet you can also rejoice because his whole life and his baptism empowers your baptism, which connects you to Christ and gives you his whole life, death and resurrection. So your baptism means new life in Christ means forgiveness of sins, means God holds you in his hands and is keeping you safe to the day of salvation, to the end of times. Amen. Now rise, faint hearts, be resolute. This man is Christ, our substitute. He was baptized in Jordan's stream, proclaimed Redeemer, Lord Supreme.